Good morning. In December 2013, a man was trying to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge in New York. There were a group of people standing below waiting to see what was going to happen while cops were trying to dissuade him from jumping. One of the tourists that was at the bottom watching, she proceeded to turn around and take a selfie and the man who was trying to jump off. Speaking about selfies. In the New York Post that day, they said that that was a very selfish thing of that woman to do. She took a selfie, ignoring the fact that this guy was going to die. Last time we talked about the filling of the spirit, and there are three main reasons or three main effects of the filling of the spirit. One, it causes progressive Christ-likeness in Galatians 5.22. Second, it causes or gives us victory over sin, and that's the entire chapter of Romans 8. And thirdly, it helps us in sharing our faith. That's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which reads, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that God does not take us to heaven the day after our conversion? Why? Is it for progressive Christ-likeness? I would argue no. Because since our conversion till the day we die, it's not like we are Christ-like the day we die. We all are in different stages of Christ-likeness when we die. So it's not that God is waiting for us to get Christ-like to then take us. So why is it that God delays our death on earth after conversion? Is it so that we can get victory over sin? I would say no. Because from the day we are converted till the day we die, it's not like we have complete victory over sin on the day we die. So the reason why God keeps us on earth after our conversion, after we have accepted Christ, is to glorify his name, and that is primarily through sharing our faith. So the only reason you and I are still here is to share the faith. This morning I'm going to look at five things about evangelism. It's called evangelism, it's called sharing the gospel, sharing the faith, witnessing Christ, it's all the same thing. Five things about evangelism that I want to say this morning. The first thing is that evangelism is like golf. How many of you don't play golf? Don't play golf? Okay, golf is a rich man's sport, and so let me give you another analogy. I don't play golf. For those who don't play golf, I'm going to explain golf briefly. But evangelism is also like felling a tree. You don't do it in one strike, you do it in multiple strikes, and each strike complements a strike before it. But golf is this game where you have a hole, and you have a ball, and you have a stick. All you need to do is to use the stick 
and how many ever times it takes to get the ball into the hole. And then, incredulously, you pick up the ball from the hole and you do it again. And you do it 18 times. And after that, you go home and come back three more days and you keep on doing it. That's golf. Evangelism is like golf. You go from hole number one to hole number 18. John chapter 4 and verse 37 says that thus the one saying one sows and another reaps is true. It is highly unlikely that the person who moves another person from hole one to hole two is going to be around for that person to get to hole 18. If you have ever shared the gospel to anybody and they immediately fell down on their knees and invited Jesus into their lives, that's because they were at hole 17 when you shared the gospel to them. One sows and another reaps. So there are numerous instances when you will share the gospel and in your mind, nothing happened. But what did happen was that somebody was moved from hole six to hole seven and you didn't know about it. In 1912, medical missionary Dr. William Leslie went to live and minister among tribal people in a remote corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo. He stayed there for 17 years. He hardly saw any change. He came back to the US a miserable, discouraged man and died a mere nine years later. But almost 100 years after he had gone there, in 2010, a group of people led by Eric Ramsey went to these areas in order to share the gospel. This area was so remote that from a main airport, you got to fly two and a half hours in a smaller plane. Then you hike for a mile to reach the river. And then from there, you cross the river half a mile. And then you hike 10 more miles to reach the first village of the Yansi people. And when they reached this village, they found a network of reproducing churches. In the area of 34 miles, there were eight churches. In one of the villages, they found a thousand member cathedral. That was where the first church was and all the people came in and it was filled to capacity and overflowing. So in the 1980s, they had church planting movements all over and established different churches. All the while, Dr. Leslie thought that he was a failure. He probably didn't take people from hole 17 to hole 18, but he took a lot of people from hole 1 to hole 16. When you share the gospel, be encouraged that when you do share, if you don't see a result, that's okay. But whatever you have shared has contributed in their journey from hole 1 to hole 18. The second point that I want to make about evangelism is that it should be Christ-centric. And we've heard this before, we've heard this numerous times, but we need to keep Christ as the center of the evangelism sharing process. 
as a part of my theological studies in India, I studied Hindu philosophy. And so I immersed myself in Hindu philosophy because I thought that I could study Hindu philosophy and thereby share it to Hindus. So I remember this one time I had done all the study about Hinduism and their philosophical systems and all the comparison of Hindu gods and Christ and so on. And I invited two of my friends to go and share the gospel to. I called them to a restaurant. We went there, we sat around, and I started to talk Hindu philosophy. It took me 15 seconds to realize that I knew about Hindu philosophy a thousand times more than they did. (laughs) I had started off on the wrong thing. I did not need to talk about Hindu philosophy. All I need to do is to talk about Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. What is the gospel? Remember Jesus Christ, descended from David, raised from the dead. There are three components to the gospel. The humanity of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. That's all you need to say. And you have to make sure that you say all three. The gospel is not the gospel without the life of Christ. The gospel is not the gospel without the death of Christ. The gospel is not the gospel without the resurrection of Christ. And all three components need to be there. Of course, we add other stuff, but we need to make sure that these three components are there. We can get sidetracked by different questions. But when you are faced with a question, somebody asks you a question, you've got to determine whether the question is a genuine one or not. If it is a legitimate question, we don't ignore it. We can refer it out to somebody else who knows. You don't need to be the greatest apologist. You don't need to be the greatest philosopher in order to answer every question to share the gospel. You just need to know Jesus Christ. You know Jesus Christ, the next day you can share the gospel. It's easy to get sucked into questions about the faults of Christians. Oh yeah, you're talking to me about Christ, but you know what the Christians did in the Crusades? Yes, I know what the Christians did in the Crusades. But we're talking about Jesus Christ. Stay on Christ. Or you you can get sidetracked into social questions. What do you believe about this kind of orientation? Or what do you believe about this law that has been overturned in Wisconsin? Stay on Christ. Or you can get questions on difficult passages in the Bible. Stay on Christ. You can always refer those questions out. Sometimes you have legitimate questions. Sometimes you have ridiculous questions. Sometimes people ask, oh yeah, who did Cain marry? Well, I'm glad you're concerned about somebody else's wife. Yeah, Cain married his sister, I guess. It's easy to get sidetracked. But what happens when you share the gospel and they ask you questions that you know are not genuine questions? 
What does the Bible say? Matthew chapter 10 verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Don't waste your resources on people that are not ready for the gospel. At the expense of people that are ready for the gospel. I'm not saying that you condemn them for eternal destruction. I'm I'm saying that you come back to them later when they are ready. It may just be that they are nowhere near hole number one. And so you're trying to move them from hole 17 to hole 18 and they are not even your hole number one. We are called to confess, not convert, not convince, not convict, not confuse, but confess. Confess Jesus Christ. The third thing that I want to say about evangelism is that we need a verbal witness. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So no matter what else you do, at some point you have to say, this is the gospel. And you have to speak it. So then somebody may ask me, is it okay if my life is a witness? Your life needs to match up with what your words say. But at some point, you need to speak the gospel. Two arguments for that statement. When somebody says that my life will show the gospel, that is a very arrogant statement. Because you're basically saying that your life is so holy that people are going to fall down and ask you, why is your life so holy? The only person that could have pulled that off who lived the most holy life was Jesus Christ. And even Jesus had to speak the gospel. You have to speak the gospel. I think I heard the collective sigh of all the introverts in the room. How many of you are introverts? Okay. See, these introverts don't even want to raise their hands. How many of you are extroverts? Extroverts in the room? See? There are more introverts in the room than extroverts. Which brings me to my fourth point. Evangelism is personality based. Is evangelism only for extroverts? No. Most of the disciples of Jesus were introverts. Peter was an extrovert. God uses our personality and our temperament. God does not change your personality or your temperament when you become a believer. Let me give you an example. Who was the first disciple to jump up for everything whenever Jesus asked a question? Which team is going to win baseball today? Boom. There's this one guy who would jump up every single time. Who do the people say I am? He jumps up and says the answer. Peter. In the book of Acts, who was the first person to stand up and speak? Peter, Jesus did not change his extrovert nature. Jesus does not change our natures just because we become believers. We stay introverts and God wants us to do ministry as introverts. 
If you are an extrovert, God is going to ask you about the 50 people that you meet every day. If you are an introvert, God is going to ask you about the two people you meet every week. God is not going to ask you about the 50 people that the extrovert meets. And God is not going to ask you about the people that are lost in Mozambique. There are people in your neighborhood, there are people in your workplace that God is going to ask you about. About 10% of the church on average has the gift of evangelism. But for the remaining 90% of the church who don't have the gift of evangelism, we are still encouraged to do evangelism. Not encouraged, we are commanded to do evangelism. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5, it says, But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. You may not be part of the 10% that have the gift of evangelism. You may be among the 90%. So you don't have the gift, but you still have to do the role of an evangelist. You have to still do the work of an evangelist. For about 15 years in India, I was in charge of Sunday school for kids. I hated it. The kids hated it even more. I was not gifted for it. I was just doing it because there was nobody else. I was playing a role. We have to play the role, even though we are not gifted for it. There's a reason why the church leadership has never asked me to speak to to kids. It's not going to work. The fifth point that I want to make is about opportunities. Ephesians 5 verse 16 says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So you may argue saying, you know, I go to work and there's no time to share the gospel. I mean, there's no appropriate time to share the gospel. There's no opportunity available. There are plenty of opportunities available. We are not paying attention. How many of you don't like Indian food? I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to be offended. Don't, oh man, you guys are offending me. Okay, do you don't like Indian food? Can you name a restaurant, Indian restaurant in the Northland? The, the guy that doesn't like Indian food. No, he, he can't name. Anybody here that likes Indian food? Okay. Can you name a restaurant in the Northland? Or some restaurants in the Northland? Seva. Swagat. Taj Mahal. So for the guy who doesn't like Indian food, he can't name. And that's okay. Because he doesn't like it. But for the people who are looking for Indian food, there are Indian food available. When we are not looking for opportunities, you will never find an opportunity. It's not there. But there are plenty of opportunities. When you go to work in the morning, there are plenty of opportunities that day to share the gospel if we are looking for it. If we find ourselves without opportunities on a day-to-day basis, it means that we are not looking for it, we're not even praying for it. Let's say that you woke up tomorrow morning and you prayed and asked God to give you an opportunity to share the gospel. Will you be looking for it? Of course you will be looking for it. 
Quickening is a medical term used to describe the moment when a mother feels a baby move inside of her. For a second time plus mother, second time, third time, so on. For a second time plus mother, that is at 16 weeks, she feels a baby move. For a first time mother, she feels quickening, she feels a baby move at 20 weeks. Why is there a difference? The baby is still moving, right? The baby is still moving from the 16th week onward. But for a first time mother, she doesn't recognize it. The baby is there, the baby is moving, the baby is kicking, but the first time mother does not recognize it. God is speaking to us about people in our workplace and we are oblivious to it. We are not quickened to listen to him. The more you want to listen, if you want to practice listening to God, the way to do it is by practicing. The way to get good at listening to God is by practicing. Within two years of a person becoming a believer, he loses all his non-Christian friends. And it's not because the non-Christians went away. It's because the Christian goes away. So therefore, we have to be intentional in staying in touch with non-Christians. It's harder for those who are working in the church and they see Christians only all day long. For them, it's even harder to be intentional. Of the 2,000 passengers on the Titanic, the day it went down, 1,517 people were lost. At the time the Titanic went down, there was another ship, the California, 30 miles away. In fact, as the people were sinking in the Titanic, they could see the lights of the California 30 miles away. The radio operator on the Titanic tried numerous times to get through to the California, but they never got a response and no ship came. The California did not come to help them. Why? Because there was only one radio operator on the California and he had gone down to sleep and the radio was turned off. So 1,500 people died. When we go to work, we go down to the bunk and the radio is turned off and we go to sleep. And there is a cry of distress from all around us, and we do not hear it. We are busy taking selfies while guys are trying to kill themselves. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Samuel Shoemaker was an Episcopal priest who co-wrote the original AA Steps. And he wrote this in a poem entitled The Door. He said, I stay near the door. I neither go too far in or stay too far out. 
The door is the most important door in the world. It is a door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it, so I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish that they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men so as not to hear them and remember they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch, for those I shall stay by the door and wait, for those who seek it. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, so I stay near the door. John Eglin had never preached a sermon before. And when he woke up the cold winter morning in 1850 in Colchester, England, he saw that snow had covered his little town. He contemplated not going to church that morning, but since he was the deacon, he put his coat and his boot and his hat and walked six miles to the Methodist church where he was the deacon. He found when he got there that most of the people had stayed at home. There were only 13 people that had showed up. 12 members and one new person, a 13-year-old boy. Since there was nobody else to speak and he was a deacon, he had never spoken before, he got up and spoke a 10-minute sermon. The sermon meandered and wandered and in an effort to make many points, made none. But at the end of that sermon, in a moment of courage, he lifted his eyes, looked at the 13-year-old and said, young man, I tell you, look at Christ, look, look, look. In the words of that 13-year-old many years later, I did look. And the cloud in my heart lifted. The darkness rolled away and the sun shone through. That 13-year-old boy was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, England's Prince of Preachers. Matthew 9:37 says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. <laughs> 